Today's reading from the New Testament comes from Acts 11, 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the earth. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray. Oh God, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart, everybody here, that we would know the hope to which you've called us, what a treasure it is to be part of your people, in the immeasurable power demonstrated through Jesus raising from the dead, which exists and dwells in those that believe and follow him. Unfold your wisdom and your love to us because we need it. And we trust you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Um, on this Sunday where we, where we highlight uh, the sanctity of life, I was thinking, uh, as we do that, it's not just reverence and advocacy for the breath and the life and the image bearer in the unborn, but it's also the potential of the life, the purpose of the life. The scripture teaches that God has given everybody in his image purpose in their life, divine purpose. In fact, the New Testament says, for those that belong to God, he has prepared good works in advance for them to walk in. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, that this tradition um, um, you know, embraces, says that the purpose of mankind is to There you go. That was pretty good. Uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. And you actually get a glimpse of this with John the Baptist when he's in his mother's womb. Mary, the mother of Jesus, shows up and he leaps in praise. Already the start of his life. Each life is God sanctioned with purpose. Not just life, but also with purpose. And I had a reminder of that this past week when uh, a significant event in the life of my neighborhood block and even beyond 
where we uh, had the uh, homegoing celebration of the unofficial mayor of our block, the granddad of our block, the protector of our block, uh, Mr. William Outlaw. Uh, he actually uh, came to church several years ago, and some of you have met him because if you've been on my block and he's outside, you're going to meet him. Um, he was the first person my family met as we literally opened up the car door and stepped onto our sidewalk. He, uh, he invited us down to his basement where he had candy and some dolls that sang music and different things like that. Uh, that began a near 20-year friendship uh, of a man that I came to know, learn from, love, share fellowship, hold hands and pray, and more so a man that uh, transformed anybody that was in contact with him, in touch with him. It was something at the um, wedding, uh, or rather it was a wedding, it was the wedding between God and him, but uh, the funeral, uh, to hear of his uh, education, his service in the military, two bronze medals, didn't know that his long tenure working for the federal government, and then starting a kitchen, a restaurant in U Street called Outlaw's Kitchen, which was well-known, and also for the way it integrated, you would find police officers there, but also people on the other side of the law, sitting at tables, eating the food together. In our neighborhood, it showed up in a couple different ways. Um, the big one was when he saw that our packages were being stolen, he made his living room our post office. All the packages went there, and it was such a joy to, to meet uh, a new neighbor who looked at us and said, um, someone named Outlaw has my package. <laughs> and called us. Uh, for him being the one that rallied the block party and made sure we all got out there. And uh, what he was most well known, uh, his greeting, he greeted every Every guy he saw by saying, hello, handsome, and every woman by saying, hello, gorgeous. Now, I was thinking, there were plenty of reasons why he could have not been that way. Right? I mean, he could have, being a longtime resident on that block and city and seeing all the transition over and over, he could have just kind of withdrew. Or the, or the struggles of gentrification and the way the city... He, he could have become someone who just got cynical or critical or complaining. But he didn't. His faith actually led him to be a giant of cross-cultural love. And as the preacher said at his funeral, uh, he was hopeful and helpful. When I think... Uh, about his life, I think about the way one person, there were news stories about him and someone wrote a book about him, how one person can be used of God to cross cultures and love. One person with a high school education who was faithful on one block. And it just spread. Just spread. So here we are in the book of Acts, and Jesus has this huge mission. I want, to, I want the gospel and the story of what I've done to go into every tribe, tongue, and nation all over the world. 
Not an easy job. It's not an easy thing to do. And I said last week, for that to get, hap- uh, for that to get started, two things had to happen. The apostle Paul had to get converted. He had to become a follower of Jesus. And Peter had to have sort of a second uh, conversion, a cross-cultural conversion. And with these two individuals, leadership was established for this mission. But actually, it really gets going with names of people you would have never heard. We read about them in our passage. While that leadership was established, it was when those that moved out and moved into the nations began to preach, that's when the strategy developed. And I want to look at that strategy. The strategy of the mission that developed with the church in those early days as they moved out. Just three things. One, the strategy of grace and mission. Grace and mission. Um, Our passage tells us that the catalyst for the mission was persecution. Um, It was the church being persecuted and suffering, and that spread folks moving throughout uh, beyond Jerusalem, Judea, beyond Samaria, into the uh, wider ancient world. Now, I don't know about you, but I imagine if I have gone through the trauma of losing my home and losing my job and losing my livelihood and losing my homeland upon the grief of people in my family possibly being jailed or executed, and I'm moving into a new place, my instinct would probably not be to say, how can I befriend everybody? How can I actually share my faith? It might be, let's take cover. So how does this happen? How do these people actually speak out of the gospel? And... um, I have to believe, and I think there's evidence of it here, their confidence that they belonged to God and they had another home enabled them to move into that culture. The grace of God. There, was a, there is a relationship between confidence in grace and zeal in mission. Now, the guy that I think really did... This, this, the church, that's a huge service, was a man named Jack Miller. Uh, he died in 1996. And he uh, developed a curriculum called Sonship. Has anybody ever heard of that curriculum? A couple people, a couple people, yeah, handful. It's had a huge impact on, I can't tell you how many ministers and churches and things like that. Um, now, one of the exercises I like to pull out myself and look at, but also one that I give to people, is this thing where he has uh, two columns on a sheet. And the one column is orphan mentality. Mentality of someone that is you know, sort of living. Jesus said, right, I will not leave you as orphans. And then the other was, what, does, what is the mentality of a son or daughter by grace? So on the side of the orphan mentality, you know, there's things like, well, orphans tend to be, spiritual orphans, ungrateful, tend to be critical, need to have to look and be right and kind of control situations. They often feel alone and they're full of self-concern. 
but they also lack passion in sharing the gospel. Because there's not much good news to share, right? Opposed to that, the contrast is a son and daughter of grace. They're growing in the assurance that God is really their father and really loves them. That he really does. They're learning to walk in daily conscious partnership with God. Believing he's for me and not against me. We're actually working together here. They, learned, they, they can freely confess their faults and they're often wrong. They know they're often wrong. But the other thing is they desire and have zeal for other people to know Jesus, to know this grace. Now here's what's interesting about this. That curriculum he developed, as much of an impact as it had upon churches and pastors, it was originally developed for missionaries. It was missionary training. That's why he did it. So that people, he understood this combination between grace and mission. And we see it here as well. It tells us that these disciples were preaching the Lord Jesus. Preaching the person of Jesus. Right? The person in work, that means they were Jesus-centered in their message, Christ-centered in their message, often, I'm sure, giving testimony that the Son of God came. God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus, and he gave himself for me. That he offered his life as an atonement so that my sins could be washed away, grace greater than all our sins that he's made me righteous, that he's given me an inheritance. I've been united. I'm holy and dearly and chosen and loved, beloved by God. They preached Jesus and everything he did and everything that we receive in him. But we're also told when Barnabas showed up, one of the leaders, what he saw was grace. Right? That's what it says. When Barnabas came, he saw the grace of God. He saw it at work in the community. And it wasn't just the theology of grace. It was the fruit of grace. And that fruit of grace was cross-cultural love. Right? The church beginning to move across these boundaries. And it's that grace that has been the foundation philosophy. I've said to you all before, when we uh, came up with a name with the church, Grace DC, it was intentional. We understood that grace was our only hope for our place, DC. Right? The strategy that we would actually be, by God's grace, moving into our city, and by God's grace, moving out of whatever culture we're in, that we might become an intercultural church. Thank you, Mazare. She, ta- she taught me that. Intercultural church of intimacy and relationships. The strategy between grace and mission is present. Second thing, the strategy of where and who God does his work. Now, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, just behind Alexandria and Rome itself. Had over... Close to half a million people. And um, it really was 
historians tell us, an extraordinary city. I mean, it had this island in the middle of the city that had a palace and a hippodrome that was connected to the rest of the city, aqueducts and baths and theaters and temples, a basilica to the imperial cult. These extraordinary things. But even for a large city, it was unusually multicultural. Unusually multicultural. And the city officials encouraged immigration, and Jewish people were given full citizenship there. So you see, there are pieces, right, kind of being put in place here. God works in and through history. There was a vital community of Jewish people, Greeks, Romans, Asians, and and Africans. And this is the site where God chooses to break through with his cross-cultural church. This is where God decides to establish this foothold. And it's after this point that Paul begins the strategy of going to cities. The strategic nature of going to cities. Now this is something that, uh, if you know Tim Keller and who he is, uh, nobody thinks really better about this idea of the importance of cities. Uh, Our church, um, you know, when Redeemer Church in New York was established, the the PCA, uh, largely, you know, a suburban southern denomination, uh, there were a couple churches that would be called inner city churches, the New City Network. But Redeemer was the first time the church had gone into a city and began to be fruitful for the Presbyterian Church in America. And this church is a direct... uh, child of that that movement. The church I was at in Boston was one, and then uh, Grace D.C. was planted out of that network. And Keller still acknowledges the strategic nature of cities. Let me me, uh, read something. Here he's quoting Foreign Policy magazine. The 21st century will not be dominated by America or China or Brazil or India, but by the city. Cities rather than states are becoming the islands of governance on which the future world order will be built. Already more than half the world lives in cities. One estimate is that 8 million people every two months move into cities around the world. Just 100 cities account for 30% of the world's economy and almost all of its innovation. And then Keller goes on to add, you know, cities are the place that young adults flock to. Let's hear it for our young adults. Woo! Right? Also the place where people immigrate and come. Cities tend to be, uh, global cities tend to be more like one another than they are the rural areas that surround them because of the people that come. Cities are places of culture shaping. Now listen to what I'm saying here. It's not for everybody to hear to, to feel extra cool tonight. We're boasting. I'm not saying that people, uh, that cities are more, um, are better or more valuable. They're more influential. And God doesn't just blow that off. God moves with his church into cities because of the influence that they'll radiate, the influence that they'll have. And then Keller goes on to say that the greatest challenge today is to stimulate a significantly sized percentage of Christians who intentionally adopt missional living in the city. 
This comes from his podcast, How to Win the West Again. This idea of if you could get a group of Christians intentionally living mission-wise, that's when things really begin to happen. And this has been, again, the vision and hope we've had since the beginning. Continues to go on. So that's a bit of where, but just briefly, who. Who does he use to initiate this? Well, in this case, in this passage, uh, we're told that um, followers, Jewish followers that converted to become Christians from North Africa were the ones that God uses to speak the gospel outside of the normal circle. It says that they preached both to Jews and to Greeks, Greek-speaking. What made them do that? What what edge did they have? Why would God use that strategic group? I, I think there's probably a couple reasons why. One, you know, if you've been ejected from your home and your culture, you tend to cling to it less, right? Right. The, the more like you are grounded where you are, it's harder to give up cultural things. But he, these people had been moved out of what felt like home, and so the home that they carried was their home in Christ, right? Their significance in Christ, and enabled them to actually sympathize at outsiders. Also, As they lived outside of their own culture, they could get a vision for how the Christian faith could work in that culture, right? That's one of the blessings. If you've ever traveled and, you know, gone to different parts of the world and seen the Christian faith of, of, you know, Christian faith flourishing or among other uh, cultural groups than your own, it persuades you more deeply of the truth of the Christian faith. As you see, wow, it actually has relevance and works with great power. This is a unique part of the Christian faith. So listen to what uh, one scholar says about Antioch. The Antioch church was the first place that the gospel had created a truly new humanity out of many different nationalities. Before, when the outside world saw a group of Christians meeting together, they saw only Jews and they figured this was just some variety of Judaism. It's also true if the outside world had only seen Greeks and Romans, Greeks and Romans, they would have figured this was just some variety of Greek and Roman religion. This is the thing. The world believes that religion is just a function of your culture, family, or class. But when they saw something absolutely new, people coming to faith across culture, racial, class boundaries, they realized there's something unique here. And it holds true today as well. You know, the philosophers of that day, um, they would appeal mostly to the educated with some strings attached because they knew they needed to win over people and hope that they would win patrons. But the the Christian faith, as it's preached, and we'll see this in the book, uh, chapter 17, when Paul speaks to the philosophers in Athens, it appealed, but it it didn't have strings attached. The speakers weren't trying to say, hey, I hope I get some money out of this. The mystery cults of that day, they were for the wealthy because there was a big initiation fee. So the poor couldn't be part of that. And of course, many of the social institutions there wouldn't welcome women. But what do you find in Jesus' inner circle? Women. What do you find in Paul's inner circle? Women. 
All of this was perplexing. This was a movement reaching one new people. And it's also the ministry culture of the church. And here we center on Barnabas. We've met him before. Barnabas was nicknamed the son of encouragement. He sold his land to give to those that you know, did not have. He was the one when all the disciples were afraid to receive the Apostle Paul, who was a persecutor, he was the one that actually brokered the relationship, mediated the relationship. And he was the perfect guy to go here. He's an experienced missionary, but he's also by nature someone that is open to new things. Right? I mean, he's a guy, we're told here, he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, he's a bridge builder. And what are the words used? It said when he showed up, he saw, he rejoiced, he encouraged. Now, again, he could have responded in a different way. He could have been suspicious. What's going on here? This doesn't look like normal church for us. He could have been threatened. Going, you know, I, you know, I don't know about uh, this movement. It's like catching on fire. What does that mean for us in Jerusalem? He could have been resistant. And it's especially seen in the fact that he recruited the Apostle Paul. He doesn't recruit a lesser talented person that will idolize him. He doesn't, uh, he's, he's not uh, possessive or competitive. He goes and gets the absolute best person, cosmopolitan, better educated than him, better theological training, he gets him to come and lead the movement, right? He could have showed up and said, I'm going to take credit for this one. No one back there has seen anything. This is going to be my thing. Man, this is on fire. This is expanding all over the world. This is going to go global, and I'm going to be in the center. He doesn't do that. He reminds us of John the Baptist who says, he must increase and I must decrease. It's a mark of team ministry, actually. One of the things that we try to remind people that are leaders in our church is the first job you have as a leader is to start looking for your replacement. Start looking for the person that you're going to be training and you're going to be empowering. And it's that much more important when you talk about uh, if there's a majority culture church, empowering those that are not in that majority culture. That much important if we're to achieve the end that we want. But lastly, it was a strategy to close of word and deed. Uh, it's not long after this church is established, this young multicultural, intercultural church meets the needs of the mother church in Jerusalem. They're going through a famine. We read about that. And we see that financial generosity is one of the first signs of spiritual vitality. One of the first signs that they move. But also deeds of mercy and justice. They weren't just caring for their own poor. We know this because of the testimony of the early church. In uh, the 4th century, in Caesarea, there was a famine. And Eusebius, church history, Eusebius, this is what he said. See, what happened is... When the famine hit, everybody left the city. Sort of like when the famine of riots and poverty hit D.C. and everybody left the city. And what was left was just like people struggling. People that didn't have anything. And this is what he said. All day long, some of them, Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial. 
countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. And this just doesn't come from the church. Later, uh, the emperor Julian the apostate, who was a Christian, but rejected his faith, mourned the fact that the Christians cared for not only their poor, but the poor of the city outside. He couldn't quite reproduce that ethic that he hoped to. But it wasn't just that. It was also full circle care of the children, advocating for the children. In Roman law and culture, one of the earliest uh, codifications of Roman law, uh, there was no no, um, law against abandoning children. You know, just exposing them and abandoning them. In fact, um, there were Aristotle, Seneca, wrote clearly that it was fine to uh, basically uh, any child that had a deformity to just to leave it. It's better that it should die. There's a well-known first century letter from a Roman soldier named Ilarion, and he writes this to his wife. I'm staying in Alexandria. I ask you and entreat you, take care of the child, the child they have. If, and, if, and if I receive my pay soon, I will send it to you. And then he says, above all, if you bear a child and it is male, let it be. If it is female, cast it out. This was the culture then. But it, were the, it was the Jews and the Christians that were appalled by this and began to find the children take them, put them in families, adopt them. They spoke up, Justin Martyr, of the wickedness of this. But where they really distinguished themselves, it wasn't just speaking up, it was this quiet, militant, strong service to the weak and vulnerable. It just was every day, it was there. It was just there. To engage in the mission is a mission that's not only good news heard, but good news felt. A life that receives good news. And God did it with regular folk just like you and me. People that caught on fire with the gospel of grace. People that began to see the beauty of the person of Jesus. People by God's providence that were in cities, thank you for being here. People that began to serve their neighbors quietly, even though they were just a small sect and often maligned, and shared the good news of what God had done to transform their lives. And that broke down barriers and caused the Christian faith to spread all over the world. And finally overturned the laws against exposing infants. Constantine, the law was repealed. We have to expect big things, right? This idea that God really has put us here with a purpose. I would ask you this. If you are someone that is a professing Christian, do you believe that there are good works you have to do here that no one else can? Do you believe that God has put you here for an extraordinary supernatural purpose, and it may just look like daily, daily stuff, serving, 
That's the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the strategies we see, your wisdom. We thank you for uh, the beauty of the gospel. We pray, O oh Lord, would you, uh, every church that proclaims your name, we pray that you would catch on fire. We pray you would transform our city. We pray that the most vulnerable would feel it first. They would feel it first. We pray that you would make our church more and more, every day, every week, an intercultural place of love that reflects the banquet that we're headed to. In Christ's name, amen.